We turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We take as our text verses 13 through 17, but we'll read the entire chapter. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take verses 13 through 17 as our text this evening. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if he call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have this section beginning with a wherefore in verse 13. The apostle uses that wherefore by the inspiration of the Spirit to connect to the preceding. The solid foundation on which the apostle builds is the doctrine of God's sovereign, eternal decree of election. That decree of election established and realized in Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And as the apostle has been speaking of the state of the believer as salvation, deliverance, God has delivered us. He's given to us that deliverance from evil. And he's brought us into the joy of that salvation. The apostle urges the people of God to joy, unending joy, overflowing joy with regard to that glorious inheritance. Now, as those who are recipients of this glorious salvation, those who have been begotten again, those who are living then in the earnest expectation of it, therefore, this is how you are to live. You are God's children and now live as children of the Heavenly Father and do so by living in holiness. And so the cry of the apostle now is for holy living. Be obedient. You are God's children. Walk now in obedience, not fashioning yourself after the lusts that previously you pursued. Obedient children are to imitate their father in heaven. And as those who have been called out of darkness into light, we face this question, who am I? Who are you? And what then are we called to live unto? God sets before us here the covenant calling that is given to his elect children. Be holy as I am holy. Now that cry for holiness rings through the scriptures. We find it throughout the Old Testament through the New Testament. 
There's been attempts to try to find where is the apostle quoting from here. And one can turn to the book of Leviticus, but there's so many passages in the book of Leviticus that speak of a call to holiness that we can't even identify a specific one. Leviticus 11 verse 44, 19 verse 2, 20 verse 7, and 26 are just a few of the many that could be cited. In the New Testament, similarly, God calls the wonder that those who are redeemed, those who are chosen by Him, are chosen and redeemed unto holiness. That's the calling that God sets before them. And we'll quote that out of Ephesians 1, especially verses 4 and 5. God's purpose with regard to the salvation of His children is that they reflect Him in His holiness and in His glory in a creaturely way. And God comes to us then as those who are redeemed, as those who are chosen unto that glorious salvation, those who are the subject of His grace. And He sets before us this covenant calling. Be ye holy, even as I am holy. We take that as our theme, called to holiness. Noting, first of all, the attitude. Secondly, the holy obedience that's spoken of here. And finally, the expectation. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, holiness is an attribute of Jehovah God alone. God alone is the Holy One. And that holiness distinguishes Him from everything that is created. Holiness is not knowledge. The wicked prophet Balaam had knowledge. Holiness is not a good profession of one's faith. Judas, Iscariot, made a profession of faith. Holiness is not a zeal for certain religious things. The wicked king Jehu had an outstanding zeal to destroy the house of Ahab as God had commanded him to do. But he didn't do it in holiness. Hebrews 12 verse 14 identifies holiness as that without which no man shall see the Lord. So serious and so important this holiness is. Now, holiness is the totality of God's divine attributes. As we think of the various attributes that are given to God, the fact that God is love, that God is mercy, that God is righteousness and all of the rest, it's especially holiness that stands out. And incorporated and included in holiness is the idea of God's love and God's wisdom and God's mercy and God's compassion. Holiness being a harmonious blending together of all of God's attributes in one divine core. It's the expression of all that is God. Think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah is given an insight into the glory and the wonder of heaven. And he hears, holy, holy, holy. The thrice hold God. The thrice-hold expression of holiness directed toward Jehovah God. It's God's holiness that separates Him from all creation and all creatures. And it makes Him the sole good. The one who seeks Himself. The one who is consecrated to Himself. The one who is separate from all evil and all sin. God in His holiness is one who has nothing with which to compare himself. He stands 
glorious and marvelous. And God's holiness is exhibited through his law, through his commandments that reveal his will. God's holiness is seen in his word and in his testimony. Now that holiness of God is without a source. It's without measure. It has no need of support. It's the main attribute of which all of God's ethical attributes are aspects. So that this holy God is a God then of wisdom, a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who's long-suffering, a God of righteousness. And no one can challenge God's right to say, I am holy. He alone has that right. The holiness of man then can only consist in being God-centered, being consecrated to God with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jehovah God elects and He chooses to Himself a people whom He identifies as His children. And concerning those children of His, Almighty God now says, they are my children. I've adopted them into my family. And even as I now exhibit all of these spiritual traits, so they will reflect them in a creaturely way. And God sets that as the goal, not only, but as the purpose of election. Ephesians 1 verse 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He chose us so that we would be holy and without blame before Him in love. He chose us to be His children so that we would look like Him. So that we would reflect Him in His glory, in His majesty. We lost the image of God. That image of God comprised of righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. Man fell into sin. He lost that image. In Christ, that image is restored. In Ephesians 4 verse 24, talks about the wonder by which God now takes this people whom He has now adopted into His family, and He now makes them righteous and holy in Jesus Christ. Now we understand when talking that way of the principle, but then also our life. In principle, we are holy in Christ. We are righteous in Christ. Yet by nature, we're far from holy. Now this text is not talking about our holiness in Christ. We are holy in Christ. There's no need for an admonition or a calling to be holy in Christ. God has chosen His children. He's united us by faith to Jesus Christ. We are holy in Him. He addresses us in our sinful natures in the midst of this world. And as we live in the midst of this world with these sinful natures that continue to do battle against that holiness and that righteousness, we need this admonition. It's evident from our text that that is the approach of the apostle as he states, be holy in all manner of conversation. He's talking here about our life in the midst of the world. He's talking about our conduct and our interaction with others. And he's saying, you who in principle are holy in Christ need to reflect that holiness now in your interaction and your conduct in the midst of this world. 
First Thessalonians 5, verse 23, speaks of that holiness in terms of God's work of sanctification. God, by His Spirit, goes to work in those who are His children in order to cause that growth and that development. The God of peace sanctify you wholly, we read. As in wholly, entirely, completely. That's the goal that God has for us who are His children. That the God of peace sanctify us completely, thoroughly. And we realize that that's going to take place ultimately only at the end of our lives when God brings us to glory and when that sinful nature is once and for all put off. God then not only calls His children, whom He's adopted to holiness in the midst of their life here below, but God grants us His Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, which gives us the means and the graces by which that growth in holiness is possible. God not only gives us the command, God graciously works obedience and faithfulness in the hearts of His children. So that God not only begins, but He brings to completion that work which He from eternity ordained and which He established at Calvary. God will establish the wonder of salvation in the hearts and lives of His children by making His saints not only holy in principle in Christ, but actually in their day-to-day lives, reflecting Him in their conversation. That holiness comprises two different aspects. We ask ourselves, what does it mean to be holy then? What is this calling that God calls us to? First of all, holiness is to flee from sin. It's to hate sin. Secondly, it's to be devoted to God and to seek everything that is good. And so this calling, as it comes to you and to me, involves those two aspects. First of all, hate. Flee from sin. It's a holy attitude that God works in us by which we shun every known sin and we seek to keep all of God's commandments. Holiness involves hating what God hates and loving what God loves and measuring everything in our lives then according to the standard of God's Word and God's will. It's not what do our parents think It's not what did my parents do that's important. It's what does my heavenly Father think? What does my heavenly Father require of me? And so holiness is seen in laying bare our lives in connection with God's commands and God's law, which sets forth the standard of that which is right and that which is true. Holiness shows itself then in hating sin. Fleeing from sin. Instead of walking in sin, praying for the grace to walk in the pursuit of the things that are good, the things that are lovely, the things that give honor and glory to God. Now we realize that that holiness is never going to eliminate the indwelling sin. And that's the great burden, the misery of the one who is holy. I carry with me yet this body of sin, this sinful nature against which I continually do battle. And the body of this death, this sinful nature, is constantly pulling me down 
to the way of rebellion and the way of sin and the way of temptation. So that this call involves us in a fierce battle. It's a call that alerts us to the need to put on the whole armor of God. And that every moment, from the moment that we awake to the moment we go to sleep, we're aware of the devil, the world, and our own flesh trying to draw us into the ways of sin. Holiness is to be separated from that sin, to do battle against it, to flee it. The child of God walks according to that holiness by God's grace. He's a new creature in Christ. He has that life that's from above. And the life that he lives now is a life that reflects the wonder that I've been born from above. I have Christ's life living and dwelling within me. And by virtue of that wonder, I do battle against that old man, seeking to crucify him and to separate myself from his influence. But secondly, it's being devoted to God, consecrated to God. Separation from sin without being devoted to God is only legalism. We must not only have the negative, the separation from sin, but positively, why is it that we separate from sin? Why is it we do battle against sin? Because we love God and because we're wholly devoted to God and we desire to serve God in spiritual things. We don't just refrain from doing our physical labor on the Lord's Day. We positively pursue worship. We pursue that which is pleasing in God's eyes. And that's the idea here. God gives us the principle of new life that enables us not only to identify sin now, to do battle against sin, but to desire and to delight in the things that are good, the things that are lovely. So that every thought, every word, Every desire is subject to God's will. And that we are consecrated to God with the whole of our being, desiring to serve Him, to obey Him, and to honor Him. To do so in school. To do so on the bus. To do so in the classroom, not only, but also on the playground. To do so in our sports, in our activities. To do so at work, in our marriages, in our families. We're devoted to God and we want to serve God and to please Him in everything that we do. Abandoning our own will, abandoning our own desires to live for the sake of our Heavenly Father. We are His children. We don't want to look like children of the devil. Our desire is to live as His children, showing forth His praise. And so as God's children then, putting aside sin... We pursue then holiness, that which is consecrated to God, purity in every area of our life and walk, walking after humility, battling against pride, seeking to be faithful in all my calling, in all my relationships, to be Christ-like and to be spiritually minded in all my dealings. The child of God, redeemed and delivered from the bondage of sin is one who values and pursues all the things that will draw him closer to God. Those are the things in which he delights. He seeks to make use of them in his life. Prayer, reading God's Word, studying God's Word, Bible study, worship. 
Psalm 63 verse 8 puts it this way. My soul followeth hard after thee. That's the child of God. He follows hard after his God. He pursues him with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Psalm 119 verse 57. Thou art my portion. What is it that really matters in my life? It's God, my heavenly Father, and the things that are right and pleasing in His sight. This holiness will show itself in the attitude and in the conversation, the conduct of the pilgrim, the stranger, who finds his or herself in the midst of this life. And that's the idea here of the apostle. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Gird up your loins now. We're familiar with what that's talking about. In Eastern clothing, the clothing was loose and it was flowing. And they would wear robes then that would give them a wide range of movement, but also would be cool with regard to the particular climate in which they live. But such long flowing garments would be trouble if they would try to run. They would stumble over them. And so they would gird them up. That is, they would pick them up and they would tuck them into their belt. And so that then it would hang down only to their knees. And now they would be able to run. Now they could do battle or engage in activity that would be more strenuous. The apostle says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Our mind is clad with the long, loose, flowing garments of various tastes and various appetites and various affections and various desires. And those desires hang loose around us, constantly getting caught up in the things of this world and hindering us in our Christian race. We may not allow those attitudes and those desires to flow forth as they would desire. We need to bring them into check. We need to rein them in. We must gird up the habits of our loins, the habits of our souls, the habits of our minds. We need to trim ourselves so that we can pass through the thorny jungle of this world in such a way that our garments are not getting caught up in the snares and the temptations of the devil. Hold your spirit tight in hand is the admonition here. Say no to the luxurious pleasure-seeking, the things that would ensnare you as you walk down through this life as a pilgrim. All kinds of things would catch you and would try to bring you into their grips. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Set before yourself this determination to pursue God and pursue His will. Let there be no halting between two opinions. Through the endless trials, the turmoils, the pressures of the wilderness of this life, press on, but do so as one who loves God and gives evidence of that love for God by soberness and carefulness in all of your dealings and all of your walkings and interactions in the midst of this world. 
That soberness we're familiar with, often that admonition comes to us as God's children. And it comes to all different ages, all different categories of individuals. We think of a passage like Titus 2, where its application is made to elders and to deacons and to young men and to elderly men and to young women and to older women. All of us, in whatsoever circumstance we find ourselves, are called to soberness. And that soberness means temperance, self-control. Don't let yourself go according to your own lusts and desires. As one who is redeemed, blood-bought child of God, you are to control those passions and those desires. You're to bring them into subjection to God's will and to God's way. The sober Christian living in holiness moves through this world freely making use of all of the good gifts that God has placed before him, but not allowing those good gifts to usurp too great an influence on his desires or his will, that they would draw him into sin and bring him into bondage. He will not be brought into bondage to sin. When the heart is engaged in the Lord, when the heart is seeking the Lord, when it's seeking love for God and delighting in the things of God's kingdom, then it's living in that soberness. And that's the spirit to which we're called. Soberness shows itself by fleeing sin and being consecrated to God. God is my possession. God is my delight. He's my inheritance. And the child of God then, as a pilgrim, a stranger in the midst of this world, is so to speak, God-possessed. That which rules and controls his or her life is God and the marvelous wonder of God's grace. And he doesn't try to restrict God's influence in his life, but seeks to live according to it. He doesn't try to confine God's influence just to certain areas of his life, increasingly limiting that influence. No. He seeks and he longs to be a partaker of that divine nature to the fullest extent possible, that all of his thoughts, all of his desires, all of his actions be governed more and more by seeking God and the glory of Jehovah God. Be ye holy as I am holy. Now specifically, that holiness shows itself in obedience. And the text makes that connection as obedient children. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. You are children of your heavenly Father. Now show evidence of that in obedience. This is remarkable because these children were the children of disobedience. We were those who would pursue our own lusts, our own will, our own way. And now Jehovah God has so transformed us that we are children of obedience. What a wonder. This is the power of God's grace. Those who would have been ashamed, those who were enemies, are now made children of honor. What a marvelous wonder Jehovah God works in that they now are governed by a different principle. They are now governed by the principle of life. They live now as those 
who live out of Christ and show forth His praise. Lust is the natural inclination to run wild, releasing all restraint, seeking our own will, our own desires, living it up, partying, getting drunk, giving ourselves to the sexual desires that the world has to offer. While in the darkness of our sinful nature, these lusts have power. These lusts yet have influence on us. They try to take control of us. They try to fashion and guide us. Christ conquered those lusts. He turned them into love. He turned them into obedience. And that's the power and the wonder of the work of the Spirit in us as God's children. Now, obedience is not necessarily holiness. Holiness is being possessed by God and made like unto Him. And the holiness of one who is like unto God results in obedience. That holiness always leads to obedience. Again, one can obey without any evidence of holiness. Jehu obeyed the commands of God, but he didn't do it out of devotion and love to God. But where God is at work by His Spirit in the heart and life of His children, He works that holiness which shows itself in obedience. It's obedience because God commanded it and because God appointed it. It's an obedience that flows out of a love for God and a delight with regard to the things of God's kingdom. It's an obedience that's shown cheerfully. The child of God delights in the law of God after the inward man. He desires to pursue God's will and God's way. And it's not just once in a while. This is an obedience that's habitual, persevering in obedience. Whatever he does, whether it be in word or in deed, he does it for God. Whether he eats or he drinks, he does it all for the glory of God. It's a steadfast, abounding work of God. And again, there's always going to be backsliding. There's always going to be times when I fail. I cry out to God for grace and for strength. And God strengthens us so that we can do all things through Christ. The obedience of Jesus Christ is not merely a pattern, an example. It's the power that now lives within us by His Spirit by which we can obey. God not only gives us the command, but He also works in us the desire and the will and the ability by His grace. We realize, too, that this obedience is a progressive work of God's grace in the hearts of His children in the midst of this world. Although we're sanctified in principle, we're holy in Jesus Christ. Sanctification is a continuing work by which God constantly by His Spirit, is leading and guiding His children more fully to live unto Him. Some of God's children are like a seed that's just sprouting. Other of God's children are like a plant that now has one leaf perhaps growing. Others of God's children have many leaves and are producing fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 90-fold. We realize that God is at work in different ways in all of his different children, all will be bringing forth fruit. But the measure is different. We all have a beginning. We do not despise that day of small things. But we also are not content with that beginning. We pray for the grace 
to pursue God's will more fully, to flee sin and to be consecrated to him in the whole of our living and the whole of our life. And we admonish one another to greater growth. Think of a well-trained dog. He's devoted to his master. He's eager to serve, eager to obey, eager to please his master. How much greater the wonder by which God joins us to himself. We are not our own. We belong to him as he bought us, as his precious children. And belonging to him now, he's our Lord. And our delight, our desire is to serve him, to please him, to give ourselves in the pursuit of his will, out of thankful obedience to him for what great things he's done for us. Now, beloved, there are those who would so focus on their depravity that they would convince themselves, I can't do anything about my depravity. After all, I'm dead in sin. All I can do is sin. And therefore, it doesn't even do me any good to hear or to listen to this kind of an admonition. They would insist, I am so depraved that there's nothing I can do in terms of obeying God or walking in holiness. And they use their depravity then as an excuse for disobedience. Those who do so deny the power of God and the power of God's grace in His children. Beloved, pray. Pray fervently for holiness and for God's work of grace in your life. Pray for repentance, sorrow, turning from sin. This is the struggle of the pilgrim in the midst of this life. I do battle against that sinful nature. And the work of God is a work that not only results in prayer, it not only works in desire, but it results in actions. We do it. We pray. We read the Scriptures. We go to Bible study. We worship God. We love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We do battle against sin and temptation. We seek to live as His children, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts and ignorance. But as he that has called us is holy, we desire to be holy. In all manner of conversation, Paul uses that to refer to every aspect of our walk, all of our talk, in every part of your character and conduct. It must be evident that the ruling principle is not lust, it's not desires, it's love and a desire for God and for His glory. And where that lust and desire shows itself as it will continually, there's repentance. And that gives evidence of the victory that is ours in Christ. We repent, we turn away from it, we're sorry for it, and we pursue the things of God and the things of His kingdom. His mind and His will are that which I desire to reflect in my walk and in my conduct. And in everything, I want to think like God thinks. I want to will like God wills. I want to love like God loves. I want to hate what God hates. I desire to choose what God would choose. That's the burning passion of the pilgrim who is elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who's been regenerated by the wonder of God's grace. Your service to Jehovah is the most important and central aspect of your life. 
And it's out of thankfulness that you go forward. Jesus Christ has purchased you with His own blood. And we are His servants. We delight in His service. And He makes us willing, joyful servants. Bound to live and to walk unto Him. To seek His praise and to seek His honor. This is the fruit of God's glorious work of election in our lives. God chose us that we would be holy. As adults, are we modeling this passion in our lives? Does seeking after holiness look like sitting in front of the television night after night? Does seeking after holiness show itself in our interaction with the guys after work? Does this seeking after holiness reflect itself when we get together for coffee or when we get together to talk with friends? Beloved, seek holiness. Be ye holy, even as Jehovah God is holy. And seek that holiness in your conversation, your talk. There's no place for swear words in the life of the child of God. The child of God guards his or her tongue. If you children, you young people are using swear words, using words that are not pleasing to God, are you living as a child of God? Are you living out of Christ? No, you're not. You're living like a child of the devil. And you need to repent. You need to turn from that. I need to be careful how I talk. My conversation has to be that which is pleasing to my God. And I don't joke about sin. I don't take sin lightly. Too easy it is for us to do that, is it not? To joke about, to take sin lightly. We need to take sin seriously. We do battle against sin and temptation. We take it seriously at work, at school, on the playground, on the bus. We take it seriously in our marriages, in our homes. Are we maintaining purity in our conversations? With regard to dating, do we maintain that purity as we talk with our friends? Or are we pursuing lust and talking about our desires, bragging about our sexual accomplishments and what we've been able to attain to? Too often our dating is not unto holiness. It's just for fun. That becomes evident when we're not dating those whom we could marry. We're just dating for fun. Too easy we lower our guard and we enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We mock God, thinking that we can play with temptation and not be burned. Hate sin. Flee from it. Be consecrated, devoted to God. That's who we are and that's the calling that God sets before us. So easy it is for us as children, as young people, as adults, to talk like the world, to dress like the world, to seek in everything almost to be indistinguishable from the world, except on Sundays. It's as if we're trying to see how close we can come to the world and to hell. Jehovah God calls us as pilgrims and strangers Be ye holy, even as I am holy. 
Why is it that we flirt with temptation? Why is it that we flirt with sin? Is it because we're ashamed of our great and glorious God? Do we take lightly the power of His Spirit in our lives? Are we ashamed of the one who sent His own Son to die on the cross for me? Beloved, we confess our sins. We cry out for mercy. We cling to Him who alone is able to keep us from falling. And we hate. We turn away from sin. And we seek to walk in devotion to Him alone. And we pray for the sensitivity that God alone is able to work. That we become more sensitive. That we become more conscious. That we repent. And that we turn from that way of disobedience. And that we show by our dress, our actions, our conversation, our goals, that we are a holy, separate, peculiar people. A people who are committed to showing forth the praise of our God in the midst of this world. Beloved, where there is no desire for holiness, where there's no willingness to separate from sin and to walk in a manner that's devoted to God, there's no evidence of the fruit of God's grace. Where is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that one? Those who continue in their wicked and ungrateful lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. God's grace will be evident in His children. And the fruit of that wonder will be that they will seek after and they will desire to be holy even as their Father in heaven is holy. That's the calling that sat before us and the expectation that is ours. If ye call on your Father, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. That's striking. We face judgment. And that's what the apostle here is speaking of. He's speaking of the reality of being judged according to our work. We face judgment as those who have just a small beginning of that holiness and that sanctification. That sanctification, again, in our flesh is a very imperfect work right up to the end of our lives. Even the holiest of saints have but a small beginning of that new obedience. As long as we live, our gold, so to speak, is never going to be pure. The light of God will not shine through us without dark clouds of sin coming in the way. But nevertheless, true holiness is a reality for God's children. That holiness that's in Christ is ours. And we are holy in Him. And so God's children look forward to judgment, not fearful. Not concerned. We're not going to be judged at the great white throne. We're being judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And as we stand before Christ, that judgment will be merciful. It will be gracious. God looks upon us as those who are covered in His blood. Those who are righteous in Christ. Those who are purged from every sin and consecrated to Him. That marvelous wonder works in us a godly fear, a godly reverence, a godly awe. As we realize that right now, there's a sense in which that judgment is taking place. We're always before the eyes of Jehovah God, the God of heaven and earth. Constantly He's watching us. He's looking upon us. And He measures us against the perfect standard of His goodness and of His glory. He measures us as our Father, A father who loves us. 
And as we stand before Him, we don't dread His judgment. We know that that judgment is tender. It's a judgment in love. It's a judgment that's merciful. It's a judgment by which He pities us as His children, knowing our weaknesses, bearing with us in His infinite patience and love. It's an impartial judgment. It's not according to education, according to training, learning, appearance, earthly accomplishments. It's according to who and what we are in Christ. There's no difference in Christ between Jew and Gentile, between Greek and Jew, bond and free, men and women, all are one in Him. Our Heavenly Father forgives us and He strengthens us in the resolve to live unto Him. He works in us the grace by which we hate sin more and more and we love Him. He assures us nothing can separate us from the wonder of that love. And He works in us this godly fear by which we stand before Him with reverence, seeking the things that are spiritual, the things that are heavenly. He which hath called you. Beloved, that's the power by which we go forward. We have been called by Almighty God who not only calls, but He equips those whom He calls. He's called us with a powerful, efficacious call to be His children. Having chosen us before the foundations of the world, in time giving us a Savior in Jesus Christ, pouring His Spirit out in our hearts, and giving us the new life that is in Jesus Christ. And with this call comes the glorious comfort then of redemption, of victory, of glorious hope, of a hope that maketh not ashamed, of the certainty of that eternal inheritance that is ours, for which He is preparing us and unto which He is preserving us. The Holy Spirit works in us that grace to watch and to pray. Never do we say before God, I can't. Never... Do we stand before God and say, I didn't have a chance. There's no way that I could have obeyed. There's no way that I could have been faithful. No. We repent and we turn to Him in mercy and we realize this Heavenly Father who's called us is also the one who grants us the grace and strength day by day. I'm weak. My flesh is weak and sinful. I find myself at war against the devil, my flesh, and the world every single day. And I cling to this wonder. He who has called me is the one who will preserve me. He who is the judge of heaven and earth, whose judgment is merciful and gracious, is the one before whom I stand. And I pray then the prayer of the psalmist. Psalm 19, 12 through 14. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright. And I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We look to Jehovah God and to His glory. And we hope then, verse 13, to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This battle is weary. And as we find ourselves in the midst of this battle, we cry out, 
more and more for the victory and for the final end of all things. We look forward to the glory that awaits, that inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled. And we long for it. This is the earnest desire of God's children. And it's a confident hope. It's a confident hope that preserves and keeps us in that thankful obedience. God says, Whosoever believeth on Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the child of God believes. And the child of God expects what God promises. And the child of God goes forward on the basis of Christ's finished work on Calvary. Jehovah God has taken me and He's given to me a life that is from above. And I find my strength in Him. And I look to Him for the grace to run in the power and the strength that is found in Him. Now, beloved, there's always been theologians through the history of the church that have said, if you tell God's people that their salvation is sure, that their salvation is secure, then you run the risk of destroying godly living. They insist the only people that are going to want to live godly are those who understand that their godly living is necessary as something that earns their salvation. And apart from that, there's not going to be motivation to live godly. Martin Luther and the Reformers turned to Scripture and powerfully demonstrated the error of that thinking. Apart from justification and apart from faith, man will only live for self. Man cannot live in any other way. All his labor is for self. He's not seeking God. He's not seeking God's glory. He's not consecrated to God with all that he is. He's merely doing everything for himself to try to escape some judgment or some horror. There's no moral life. There's no holiness apart from regeneration and the wonder of justification. And therefore, we understand clearly the only possibility of a holy living is the fruit of our salvation, the fruit of our election. Jehovah God has broken that bondage through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And He calls us. Verse 15, He regenerates, He sanctifies, He justifies us. He calls us unto holiness. And He preserves and keeps us in the enjoyment of that pursuit. The result, beloved, we are freed from bondage to self. And we are now free to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The spirit of sanctification is at work in our hearts and in our souls. And we live then in covenant joy. We live in covenant hope. We live in thankful obedience. We long for that day when we will enjoy the fullness of the victory that is ours in heaven. And it's not merely a possibility. It's a sure reality on the basis of Christ's finished work. Beloved, may we go forward as those who show that love for our Heavenly Father. Be holy even as I am holy. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, preserve and keep us in the midst of the battle. Grant unto us the grace to hold high that standard for us and for our children. To live unto Thee in all that we do and say. Work in us the joy and the delight 
of the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ and the hope that is found in Him. And may our confession be that His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.